Hi, welcome. We're getting started just a little late. Uh, thank you for joining us. Welcome to this next session of the National Symposium for Classical Education. Again, we're glad that you were able to join us for this year's COVID edition of our symposium, all online. And we do hope to gather in person once again next year in Phoenix. Uh, we want to especially thank our sponsors who have generously joined us for this digital version of events. You can learn more about their various resources designed to support K-12 classical by visiting the exhibitors tab in the virtual attendee hub. Uh, I'm pleased to be here today with Dr. Heather Ayala as she presents Balancing the Use of Great Works Alongside Essential Scientific Content. Classical institutions of higher education, as you may know, seem to follow one of two models when teaching science. Either the curriculum emphasizes reading and engaging with the great works of historical scientists without sufficient attention to the modern scope of sciences, or the curriculum foregoes classical elements to teach the breadth of modern sciences, making them something of an anomaly in the curriculum. And Dr. Ayala will outline an integrated approach in this talk uh, to science education in her presentation. Now, Dr. Ayala has been teaching college biology at small liberal arts colleges across the country since 2007. She's currently the chair of the Department of Biology and Biochemistry at Belmont Abbey College in Belmont, North Carolina. She has a passion for teaching and has spent the past several years exploring methods for teaching biology in a style that complements a classical liberal arts education. She's taught several different courses ranging from introductory biology to upper level courses in her expertise of, I might pronounce this incorrectly, parasitology, uh, including a, teaching a special section of biology for the Honors College at Belmont Abbey. This year, she's also involved in a local homeschool co-op teaching biology to high school students. Uh, Heather recently co-authored the high school general biology text published by Classical Academic Press in 2020. And uh, that's a good transition. We would also like to thank Classical Academic Press for their sponsorship of this session. Uh, in a few moments, we're going to get started. Uh, as you are watching the presentation, if you look to the left of your screen, um, or perhaps it's to the right, I apologize, there should be an option for Q&A. So if you have any questions during the presentation, please feel free to, to drop a question in the Q&A. Dr. Heather Ayala, and I'm happy to be here with you this morning um, talking with you about science in a classical curriculum. Um, I've been a college professor now for about 14 years and really enjoy teaching biology to my students. Um, I thought I'd begin by telling you a little bit about myself and how I came to be here. I really was not introduced to a curriculum, classical curriculum, until um, later on in my life. I had a pretty typical education growing up. My parents did choose to homeschool me for a few years in elementary school, but then I went to public school, public high school, 
Um, I did go to a private four-year college and uh, graduate school. And so I really didn't um, know much about a classical curriculum until I got married and had children. And then we started to talk about, well, how do we want to educate our children and what kind of um, philosophy or approach do we want to take? And that's what really introduced me to the classical curriculum. And I really liked what it had to offer. Um, I really liked the approach and the overall um, philosophy and the education of the whole person um, just really appealed to um, myself and my husband. So we decided to pursue that with our children. And then that got me thinking about, well, what would that look like in a classroom setting, um, teaching science? and How would you bring that in? Um, when I looked around, I saw that there didn't seem to be a lot of integration between um, classical curricula and science. Um, I would see attempts um, to bring in science to a classical curriculum through readings, historical readings, philosophical readings, um, observing in nature, which are all great and wonderful in and of themselves. But I found them to be lacking in the sense that they didn't really uh, provide the vocabulary, provide kind of the basic fundamentals of science that would allow someone to really interact with the modern world, interact with day-to-day -day life. Um, and I wanted to be able to bring students um, into that and, and give them the tools that they needed um, to be able to engage in conversations in um, our current events and current life. So I began to think, well, how might that look? What, what would that entail? But I found it very challenging to try and incorporate it into my classroom, mainly because I had gotten so used to teaching the way I taught. Um, I was also teaching a lot of courses to um, students who were majoring in biology in college. And so we had set curriculum that we needed to get through. And so I felt pressure by time. I felt pressure by content. I didn't feel like I could deviate a whole lot or had time to really deviate a whole lot. So I felt kind of stuck a little bit. And then I was um, given the opportunity, a door opened um, really to teach for a year at a um, college that had a classical curriculum and they were looking for someone to come and teach science. So um, we jumped at the opportunity to do that and try it on and see how it went. Um, it was a bit intimidating because I had never done anything like this before. And so I was really outside of my comfort zone but uh, the people there were very warm and offered support and encouragement as well as some guidance. Um, so a lot of the classes taught were taught in a Socratic type of method. The students would read um, things before coming to class and then discuss them. Um, during the class, um, they would use historical texts. Um, we would use the book of nature. That's what we were encouraged to use in the science courses. And so I took the students out on a lot of outings and we would study rocks and we would look at birds, um, we would study plants, um, we looked at water systems and, and all kinds of things. And so it was really fun to be out in nature. And I kind of found myself refining my inner child, if you will. Um, it took me back to when I was a kid and we'd go on these nature walks. My dad would stop and pause and say, hey, come look at this, come look at this. And so we'd stop and we'd look at the flower on the side of the trail. and. Um, so it really, in a sense, reinvigorated my love for the natural world um, and for biology as a whole. And so that was very exciting for me. Um, I 
became an amateur birder um, in some sense because um, I led my students on a little birding expeditions and so we'd start to identify different birds and so things have stuck with me from that um, one year experience um, and it allowed me to kind of break out of the, the mold that I was stuck in. At the same time, I was struck um, again by the students who were coming and largely students who were attracted to that kind of program were ones who had either been through a similar program or were homeschooled. And they had a really, really strong foundation in writing and reading and literature and humanities, um, but they struggle with the math and the science. And it dawned on me that I wanted to try and find a way to reach those students and help them to have a uh, better preparation for college, a better understanding of science. Um, and I really wanted to write a science text to kind of start to um, engage with those students for, for homeschool groups in particular. So that was a dream and, and I kind of started to write a little bit during that um, one year, what I like to call my one year sabbatical. So after that year, um, I ended up at Belmont Abbey College. Um, this is my fifth year here and I'm uh, also the chair of the department. So lots of roles, but one of the things um, that Belmont Abbey has that um, many colleges do is of course a requirement for scholarship. And so given their resources were really limited at the small school, um, and so there wasn't the same emphasis on being in the laboratory, um, I really wanted to pursue more this idea of how to write um, and also how to engage um, and, and integrate this idea of science with the liberal arts. So that was kind of my overarching idea. A couple things happened um, shortly after we arrived here. One was that we got connected with a group of high school students. It was a pre-existing co-op of homeschool students um, that were doing classes a la carte. And so different people would come in and offer to teach a class in Latin or history, English. So my husband um, offered to teach classes in math and the physical sciences. And then I offered to teach a biology course. And so that was one way that I began to kind of uh, be able to get my feet wet, so to speak, and thinking about how to approach things a little bit differently because I had a lot more freedom in what was being taught and how it was being taught. Um, it also provided the impetus to begin writing the book I wanted to write um, because I knew that in teaching this course, there wasn't a text I wanted to use for various reasons. Um, this was a particularly a, a Christian uh, co-op. And so um, the texts I knew wouldn't necessarily be friendly to um, kind of their um, background and so I wanted something that was more open to what they were thinking but also wanted it to be um, kind of have the idea of wonder and awe and yet still retain uh, the rigor and give them the foundation they needed and I hadn't seen a text out there so I was thinking about writing one when I was told about Navari Press um, which is now part of Classical Academy Press and so I contacted them and got in touch with John Mays who's the editor and it's a bit of a story. Um, we talk a little bit about it in our next panel um, in the next hour, but ended up co-authoring um, General Biology, uh, which uh, was recently published by um, Classical Academy Press um, with Katie Rockstead. And that was a really great experience because it introduced me to um, another way to think about science in terms of a classical education. Um, the Navari Press um, ideas have this idea of mastering science 
And some of the things that John Mays brought to the table were things like um, introducing history, integrating science with other disciplines. And these ideas really resonated with me. And I thought, yeah, this is this makes sense. This makes sense in terms of how to go about teaching science in a classical curriculum. And so I'm really excited to write that book. And it took a few years, but we finally got it out. But it really allowed me to kind of dig deeper into these ideas and find um, ways to start to integrate um, or, or at least present science in a way that's friendly to a classical curriculum. The other thing that happened um, upon my arrival at Belmont Abbey College is they um, kind of revamped their honors college. They had had one, but they um, changed it from, from what it was and kind of revamped it with a bigger focus on the great texts and the classical texts. And um, as part of that, they still had to fulfill their requirement in science, which is um, most of our students take a, a basic biology class. And so um, I was appointed or asked um, to teach that section for the Honors College. And so I thought, gosh, this is my opportunity to try some things that are a little bit different um, that maybe I wouldn't have done before in my biology class for biology majors. So it gave me kind of a testing ground for things. So uh, what I'd like to kind of talk to you about today are some of the things I've tried um, and that have been fun or successful in one way or another and share them with you as ideas for maybe um, how we can begin to think about integrating science into a classical curriculum education. Um, no way have it all figured out um, and so just kind of inviting you to be a part of this discussion um, as we I think kind of navigate new ground um, in this idea of science and liberal arts. So with that um, I do have some slides I'd like to share with you. So I'm going to go ahead and transition over here um, and share this um, presentation just to give you some visuals in terms of um, what I'm thinking and talking about and that kind of thing. So kind of my big overarching question when I came here uh, to Beaumont Abbey College and started to think about this was, how do you teach science and specifically for me, biology as part of a classical liberal arts education? And um, I, I don't know that I could explain it completely, but one thing that kind of a hit upon is, is to approach it uh, like it's an apprenticeship. Uh, we do this with the classical texts, of course. We see this classical text, these are masters. Um, people have withstood the test of time and are, are still part of our Western culture. And so we read their works and we, we take what we can from them. And so I think to approach science in a similar way is, is a useful way of thinking about things. Um, that the science teacher, in a sense, is the master, and our students are apprentices that we're trying to train up in this discipline of science. Um, and so what does that look like? What does that master-apprentice relationship look like? Um, again, I, I've never formally been in an apprenticeship, but I, I kind of identified three different things that I think are part of that. Um, one is that you have the master explaining um, something to the apprentice. So if we use very simply an example of uh, a master painter teaching someone how to paint, um, then he would explain at the beginning, this is how you clean your brush. Very basic skill, a very important skill. And so he'd explain that to his apprentice. And then he would demonstrate it. And so he would show his um, apprentice how to clean the brush. And then he would say, okay, now you do it, right? So now the, the apprentice has to 
practice that skill. And you will build on these skills one at a time. So it's a step-by-step -step process um, that you are being trained in um, over time. So I think that's a useful way to think about teaching science in a classical um, curriculum. Um, but I'd like to try and give you a little bit more meat, maybe a little bit more tangible examples. So um, here are some things that I've been trying over the past several years that I thought I'd share with you um, just to give you some ideas and, and maybe to um, plant a seed and, and maybe that will give you ideas of, of other things that you could do um, and, and we can grow this, this idea of integration. So the first thing um, I've done is to use the book of nature. Um, of course, a lot of class curriculum is a great text idea. We'll use great texts, Plato, Aristotle, these sorts of um, people. And so why not use the book of nature? Look at nature, look at the natural world as a text that we can study, a text that we can read closely um, and learn about the natural world and, and really the physical world as a whole in that way. So one thing I was introduced to during my little sabbatical year was the idea of what's called a phenology. And a phenology is studying how things change over time. So we can look at, say, a flower and um, watch the bud form and then watch the bud slowly open up. And as that bud slowly opens up um, and the petals uncurl and then you get pollinators like these bees and the butterflies coming and eventually the flower dies. Um, but if it's been pollinated, then seeds will begin to form and then the seed pod might burst open and the seeds come out and then eventually the plant dies. So the phenology is kind of tracking these changes over time. And so one of the things I've done um, pretty much every year in the past five years is to have my students conduct a phenology study. And so for the duration of the semester, because we have semester long classes, um, then they choose a plant to focus their attention on and observe closely. And then they write a paper at the end of the term. Um, one thing I did a little differently this year, but I thought was really effective is um, I offered the students an example of what this looks like, a more tangible example, because I found that most of my students, when they come, they haven't really done this before. Maybe they did as a kid, um, but again, technology, phones, media, all these things have kind of stripped them of this ability to really observe and appreciate nature in that close way. And so I wanted to try and give them an example, something to model after. And so this year, um, before we started our project, I had them read uh, this article, maybe some of you are familiar with it, called In the Laboratory with Agassi. Um, Agassi was a contemporary of Charles Darwin, and he um, studied animals. He wrote some works on zoology specifically. Um, and so he, he was a great um, natural historian in, in studying these living things. So this article um, by Samuel Scooter is, is looking at the student's experience in coming in to work under Agassi. And he really wants to study insects and entomology. Um, and Agassi knocks down this fish that's been in preservatives and tells him to study it and then walks away. And so the student's kind of at a loss, kind of, you know, what do I do? And, no one's there to help him. And, and so it, it's rather a comical um, text and how he deals with this fish. But some of the things that my students took away from that reading was um, 
you know, that you have to go back and look again. You have to go back and look again, and you have to look more closely, and when you look more closely a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, um, you learn more and more about this object you're observing. You see things you didn't see before. Um, the student also notes that he starts to draw the fish because he doesn't know what else to do. And in drawing it, he begins to notice details he didn't see before. So I encourage my students to make sketches, make drawings of what they're observing. Um, again, to help them look more closely at that. Um, the other thing I think that's important to note about the, the natural world um, is that we can learn facts about nature. Um, I had my students read another uh, work. This was by Robert Hooke, who was an Englishman living in the 1600s. Um, and he um, made a microscope, was one of the few people that made the early microscopes. And then um, started observing all these very small things um, and put the collection together in something called Micrographia, which was published. And it was a big hit at the time, kind of like a, a New York Times bestseller, because no one had really seen these, these very small things. I mean, they could see things with their naked eye. Of course, there were telescopes to see the stars, but no one had really been able to look at the very, very small. So this whole world opened up. And um, so we read a little bit by Hook just to see how about his observations. And um, one of the things that you see, he does a little excerpt on an ant, which is um, very fun. But he notes things about it, their eyes. Um, he notes that it has six legs. And because it has six legs, much like a fly, it must belong to the same group as insects, um, which is indeed um, true. So we can see that by making these observations, we are able to learn about the natural world. Um, the difficulty maybe is that there's limited time. So if a student is studying biology for one semester or one year, there are only so many observations they're going to be able to make. And so they're gonna come out with an, a fairly limited understanding of the natural world. Um, and so it would be nice to be able to add to this, right? And to be able to have a more full explanation of what's going on and how the world works around us. So using this as a starting point, um, I think is really important. Um, I also think making those connections with the natural world is very, very valuable. Um, one of the other things I've done is a, in a class that I teach where we look and do a survey of all living things. So we look at bacteria, protists, and fungi, and plants, and animals. And we're looking at a lot of slides and specimens and jars, um, but I, try to also incorporate elements in there, getting them to go outside um, and go and look and see if they could find fungi and identify them and put them in a proper group uh, or look at insects and observe their behavior or identify different kinds of um, vertebrates. They're trying to get them to go outside of the lab and engage with that natural world because that's what's real. Um, and, and so I thought that was really important. Um, the second thing I've done to try and integrate is to tell the story of science. Um, looking at the story of science, what I mean is to look at the history or the timeline of discoveries and use this as a way um, to help them understand how science is done. Um, we typically talk about the scientific method, um, which is a, a systematic process of studying the living world. Observation is a key part of that. Um, so that's why I always start with the observational side of things. But then based on those observations and based on many people's observations over time, we learn things about the scientific world. 
So not only can I teach my students about some concept in biology, um, but I can also model for them how science is done and how we learn things. Um, so here's a, a very kind of mini sketch of one of these stories that I like to tell. Um, this is the story of the discovery of cells. And it starts on the left with um, Robert Hooke, again, who I mentioned earlier. Um, this, though, is a sketch that he made after his observation of cork. And cork is a type of tissue that's found in plants. Um, and so it's kind of the, uh, a dead layer of cells. And he was observing this and he noted that um, in this cork, there were these little boxes and he described them as cells or cellulae. And um, because they reminded him, um, so the story goes, of the cells of a monastery. And so that's where the first term of cell was coined was by Robert Hooke. Um, but then about oh, 150 years later into the 1800s, then other individuals, the microscope was more common now, started to make observations of cells. So the middle image you have are sketches by a man named Dutrochet, um, and he was observing different kinds of plant cells and noticed that even though there were a lot of differences between them, um, every single plant he looked at had these cells. And so he concluded that cells are a fundamental unit of all plants. Um, we see another man come on a Belgian by the name of de Mortier. Um, he, in his observations, concluded that cells come from pre-existing cells. This is where growth comes from. Um, and then the final image on the right um, is an image of animal cells. Uh, two German gentlemen, uh, Schleiden and Schwann in 1838, um, were making observations of plant and animal cells and um, concluded that all living things um, are composed of cells. And so you have these ideas that build on each other, that support each other, um, that complement each other. And through those years, those 150, 200 years, out came this kind of understanding that all living things are made of cells, that cells are the fundamental unit of living things, and that cells come from pre-existing cells. And today we refer to this as the cell theory. Um, and so again, demonstrating how science is done while also teaching a little bit about cells and the cell theory as well. Um, a third thing I've tried to do in teaching science is to integrate historical texts um, with modern science. Let me move my camera here. I'm not sure where you're seeing it, but it was blocking the words. Um, and this, I think, is, is kind of a fun thing to do because, again, in, in a, the classical curriculum, we see that um, we'll go back and read historical text or a great text. So I wanted to capture some of that in teaching science. It also works really well because um, these historical texts of science are actually much more accessible to a lay audience. And they're written in a way that can be quite entertaining. Um, this one that I'm featuring is a work by Louis Pasteur. Uh, Louis Pasteur studied many, many things. But one thing he studied and specialized in was fermentation. So he studied the fermentation of beer and the fermentation of grapes. And so he does an experiment on um, fermentation of grape juice to make wine. And his whole purpose is to try and determine where the substance is that caused these grapes to ferment. He hypothesizes that the substance is on the outside of the grape, but he has a contemporary who says, no, no, uh, that fermenting agent is actually inside the grape. 
and something happens spontaneously and it, it just converts and now uh, causes this grape juice to ferment. And so we read this little text, it's only a few pages long, and we walk through it and I use it to demonstrate how the scientific method works. That there's this observation or understanding that Pasteur has about fermentation. Um, he then posits a hypothesis, namely that he thinks this fermenting agent is on the outside of grapes. Um, and then he sets up an experiment, uh, a simple but very effective experiment. He has four different test groups. He treats them all differently. And at the end, he's able to make conclusions and show that his hypothesis is indeed correct. So it's a really nice picture of how this process is done and, and demonstrates very well to the students um, how that process of science is done. So that is one of my favorite ones to integrate. Um, another one that I really enjoy doing is the story of Gregor Mendel, who of course is, is a very famous figure in science. Uh, Gregor Mendel, of course, doing experiments on pea plants and um, how inheritance works. And so here is a, this is actually some artwork um, that was done by these pea plants, but it, it kind of shows what Mendel did. He would take pollen from a purple flower um, pea plant and then paint it onto a white flower pea plant and then let those plants produce seeds and then plant seeds and see what kinds of um, flowers would be produced on the offspring. And he does this multiple times and he looks at multiple characteristics. Um, and as a result of doing this, and he kept very detailed notes, he spent eight years um, with these studies. So it was very, very well done. And in doing so, he's essentially given us, you know, in science, our basic understanding of inheritance. Um, and we teach it still today in the same way. Granted, we learn more, there's extensions of it, but at its fundamentals, um, Gregor Mendel, what he observed is still what we're observing today. And so it's another really nice um, story. And what he wrote, um, his experiments in plant hybridization, um, it still holds true. Now he does get into some more statistical things at the end. So I usually just have my students read the first eight to 10 pages um, because that's really where the heart of, heart of it is. But uh, allowing the students to engage with those historical texts and learn about science at the same time. So that's been a really um, enjoyable one and one that seems to work well. Um, the last one I wanted to share with you, idea of how to integrate and kind of pull science into the classical curriculum is to try and integrate it with the humanities. And by humanities, I'm thinking history, literature, arts, um, these sorts of ideas. Um, these are just a few examples of things I've done and, and I think have worked well. Um, this image here is Alexander Fleming. Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin um, back in the 1940s. He actually discovered it by accident, so it's kind of a fun story also. Um, he was studying some bacteria and bacteria grown on these little plates like he's holding there, um, but he left on a trip or a vacation and he left them out or something of the sort. And when he came back, they had some mold growing on them. So they had gotten contaminated, which means no longer were they going to be good for his bacterial studies. But before he threw them out, he noticed that on this plate where the mold was growing, there was no bacteria growing. It, it was completely clear. And so he found that really interesting and decided to kind of investigate that a little bit more. So as it turns out, the mold that was growing was the mold penicillium. And he was able to extract from the penicillium um, this compound, this chemical penicillin, which we use today as an antibiotic. Um, 
it actually ended up saving many, many lives in World War II because never before had we any kind of medicine to treat bacterial infections. And so um, a lot of those people who died in wars, it was not necessarily a direct result of being injured, but it was a result of getting a bacterial infection that couldn't be treated. So this was a huge discovery. And so trying to kind of integrate these ideas that science plays a role in history and that there's a connection there or to, to put them into um, a historical timeline with historical events, um, I think can be really appealing to students who um, resonate with those ideas a little bit more. Um, some other ones that have been fun is to integrate with art. And I'm not an artist or an art person by any means. I would love to be more well-versed. Um, but these are just some famous pieces of artwork um, by famous artists. On the left, we have sunflowers by Van Gogh. On the right, some water lilies by Claude Monet. And um, I think to be a good artist and to be able to really capture the beauty and the essence of these um, things in the natural world, you have to study them and you have to observe them very closely, which really goes back to kind of the, the point I made at the beginning that Science starts with observation. And so you, you would learn something about the sunflowers. You would learn something about the water lilies um, if you were to draw or sketch or paint or whatever it might be. Um, and I also think it would help you to even appreciate the beauty of the art, knowing a little bit more about um, how these natural things work. Um, so I think an art study could be a fun thing to do. Again, I'm not, that's not my expertise. Um, so it's a bit of a stretch for me to to really discuss um, deeply. Um, another one that I had some students do for me uh, this last year is I actually pulled them into this discussion. Instead of me going and finding things all the time, I said, I'm gonna turn it over to you and I'm gonna have you go and find me a poem about some invertebrate. Um, and so I had all these different poems, ones about flies and spiders. Um, there are poems about jellyfish and octopus. Um, and it was really enjoyable to kind of read through this poetry that was there. One um, that I really liked and thought I'd share with you um, is about a praying mantis. And that's what you're seeing here in this picture. So this poem that a student shared with me is called The Praying Mantis, and it's by Lavanda Greer Eastup. So I'm going to just read it for you um, while you enjoy the picture of the praying mantis. Mr. Praying Mantis, do you really pray? Are you do you take for granted your blessings every day? Do you ever thank the Lord for your carefree life? Do you have some kids and a happy wife? We know your light green color in the summer bright is so you can catch insects as soon as they alight. In fall, you change to brown and hide upon the limbs, the color of the ground and eat at every whim. You say you are cruel and greedy and even eat your own. But the farmer says you are needed to help pay back the loan. Please don't light upon me, for it gives me such a fright to suddenly look down and see such a long and skinny sight. Mr. Praying Mantis, do you really pray, or do you just enjoy your life as you go from day to day? Um, it's a fun poem. The Praying Mantis, of course, uh, looks like he's praying because those front limbs he has very, very large. Um, holds kind of in the, the, the praying posture. But there definitely is a play on words here because the praying mantis is um, a carnivorous insect or insectivore, I guess you could say. And 
preys upon other insects um, and does indeed eat its own kind as part of its life. So it is a bit um, of an interesting twist there um, to recognize that. Um, I also wanted to share um, this little poem or reflection, if you will. Um, one of my students just this spring, when we went out to do our initial observations in preparation for the phenology project, I just turned them loose and I said, you know, go out and find something to observe. You have 30 minutes. Um, we, of course, talked about Augustine student making observations. You know, write whatever you want, draw, sketch, you know. But, uh, and usually students will, you know, write a paragraph describing things or, or just bullet points. And so I was going through the assignments and, and kind of seeing what they wrote. And this one really struck me. So I actually got permission from Ms. Maura Martin um, to share her reflections. And I actually don't know exactly what she observed, um, but I found this to be just very lovely and a, a great um, integration of the observing of nature with kind of this poetic um, side. So let me share her um, writing with you. Purple flower, creeping vine, heart of gold, petals five, gentle leaf, light to touch, frost unbitten, endureth much. Single flower left alone, where have all thy fellow gone? Has the cold cut them away? How to remain when no else stayed? Silken petals, fallen star, when all are gone, still here you are. Um, so I just thought that was really beautiful and, and was very glad that she was willing to let me share that with you. Um, one of the last uh, things I'll share, again, the idea of integrating science with humanities um, I also asked students to find different works of music, um, whether it was uh, symphonic music or ballet music, um, but something that had to do with birds. And I got all kinds of fun responses. Of course, I was thinking of things like Beethoven's Pastoral, where you hear the birds in the background, or um, Baldi um, has the spring. Swan Lake, of course, came um, to mind. Um, the goldfinch, Vivaldi's goldfinch. But I had one student and he shared this harpsichord piece called um, The Cuckoo by George Malcolm. And I just thought it was so unique and so great. Um, and so I wanted to share this with you as well. So what you're seeing here is a cuckoo bird. Um, and I'm gonna have to switch out of here for just a minute so I can go and share the sound clips with you. So, um, let me pause and do that for just a moment. And make sure that you can hear <laughs> what we're doing. Uh, so the cuckoo bird, I'll keep sharing this screen here. Here's what the cuckoo bird sounds like so that you just kind of have an idea. And then um, I'll share with you this piece um, by George Malcolm. All right, so that's the cuckoo bird. Um, and so now that you kind of know what the cuckoo bird sounds like, you'll have a greater appreciation for this piece um, by George Malcolm. It's called Daquin the Cuckoo. Here we go.
The last is the best part, that little cuckoo. Anyway, I, I just think that's really fun. So thanks for humoring me um, and, and hearing that. Um, so I guess maybe, you know, kind of thinking about this integration, it, perhaps it doesn't serve a direct purpose in helping them further their understanding of science, um, particularly. Um, but I think it does help increase just the awe and wonder idea um, of studying biology and nature and kind of awakening that within these students and helping them appreciate it um, for what it is and not as just something that they have to take or study or dread, but that there's integration with all of the, the things we study. Um, so again, those are just some of my initial thoughts and ideas, things I've tried, things that I've found fun or that the students have responded well with um, to kind of circle back. Oh, uh, one more thing I was uh, thinking too, and it goes back to um, this idea of letting students kind of take the reins and turning it over to them. Um, I had a really fun experience um, just a few weeks ago in uh, talking to students about a scientific principle. And we were talking specifically about how things move in and out of a cell. Uh, the cell has what's called a plasma membrane, which is a border or something that surrounds the cell. And so we were talking about how things move in and out and what characteristics can allow them to move in and out and what's required. And, and so one of my students asked, well, how do viruses get into cells? And so I said, well, that's a really good question. And so we, I, I allowed to kind of go off track to answer that because as we all know, um, viruses are a really big part of our lives today. And so I was explaining how uh, viruses, particularly human viruses, um, will enter into a cell. They, they kind of get engulfed in um, to the cell. And then once they're in cell, in the cell, they actually will take over the cell. And then they'll use the cell's um, machinery, the cell's um, structures to make more viruses and then come back out again. And so we were talking about this. And, and so I am sharing here, of course, um, a, a picture of the COVID virus, coronavirus on the left. But as we're talking about this, and I have students um, who are commenting on, oh, so it's like the Trojan horse, because in other classes this past year, of course, they have been reading these great Greek epics. And so they all know about the Trojan horse. And so in their minds are thinking, well, the virus is like the Trojan horse, right? It comes into the city uh, disguised in some way, and then out comes the, the enemy and it takes over the city. And um, so in a way, coronavirus is like a Trojan horse. Um, and so I thought it was a great analogy, um, albeit imperfect, but you know, hopefully the students will remember that and have some idea and understanding of viruses that they didn't have before. So I think there's also something to allowing the students to use what they're learning um, and bringing that to the classroom and, and making room for, for their ideas to help and teaching and integrating these things. Um, so at the end, I, I guess we'll just come back to kind of the, the starting idea of, of how to begin to think about teaching science as part of a classical curriculum. Um, for me, the idea of an apprenticeship is really helpful. Um, I don't think it's the only way to think about it by any means, um, but maybe a useful one. Uh, and for me to be a master um, means that you have to be a master of your craft. So you have to really love what you do um, because the students feed off of that. And if you love it and are excited about it, then the students are more likely to be engaged. Um, you have to, of course, practice it and study it and um, work on perfecting it to some degree. 
But when I say um, study it, it's entering in and participating with it. And I think that's a big difference in the approach of looking at science as a classical style as opposed to kind of the modern style. Um, it seems to me that modern science is often taught in a way of, well, let's try and understand this and conquer it and, and, and take possession of it so we can control and manipulate it. Um, whereas I think a more classical approach is to try and understand it and participate in it out of love. Um, there's a beautiful essay in uh, a book called Intellectual Appetite by Paul Griffith. It talks about the difference between being studious and being curious. Um, and so he talks a little bit about these two ways of approaching studying. And, and I just think it's a beautiful idea where the studious is the one that's entering in and participating out of love. They want to share what they're learning with everyone they meet. Um, whereas the curious um, really just kind of wants to dominate and, and control and um, take possession of. And so it's a very different approach. And I definitely think that um, when we talk about science and a classical curriculum, we really want to be on that more participatory side, on that more studious side. Um, and then that will help others to have a love for the craft, and in this case, science. So um, thank you so much for joining me and I look forward to questions and discussions um, and maybe ideas that you have as well. So um, we will talk to you soon. All right. Hi, Dr. Ayala. Welcome. Hello. Uh, thank you so much for that session. Um, I just I have a few announcements for our participants really quickly, and then let we'll dive right in. Uh, so for those of you watching right now from our audience, uh, just a quick reminder to check out the virtual attendee hub for any recommended resources related to Dr. Ayala's presentation. Uh, I, I believe many of the questions that we saw coming through were about resources. So we're going to look into seeing if we can share some of those additional resources. Uh, afterward. Uh, this afternoon we have a, a forum, I believe at 1.30, so please make sure that, that you can join that uh, if possible. And then finally, uh, after this, if you look just below your video, there should be an option to complete the survey. We would really appreciate it if you take a minute to fill those out. And then we will uh, we'll actually just transition right over to the Q&As. I had a few prepared, but I, I see that we have quite a few that came through. Um, again, a lot of people asking about resources, so I will, I will default to the, the questions with some of the highest votes. <laughs> um, I see that the top question right now is, uh, the integration of science curriculum with great books and humanities has always been very attractive to me, although very ambitious too. Usually, it means shortening the science curriculum. Do you think this is the only way? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. Something I struggle with um, a lot. And for me, I've kind of taken an approach looking at my audience. So I do teach college science classes. And so I'm teaching my general biology courses to the students who are majoring in biology. And I know they need to have a certain um, depth and, and breadth of information. Then typically I do put more emphasis on the content and making sure I get through that, um, which means the integration aspect of bringing in the classical and the humanities stuff kind of takes a back seat to some extent. Um, 
That being said, I do try to incorporate a lot of the historical elements in because I feel that they learn the scientific process and they learn the history. Um, so I can bring that in, um, but I wouldn't be doing some of these other activities like having them look up pieces of artwork or literature or this sort of thing, maybe quite as much. But when I have a class of students um, that is, they're taking the biology for just a general ed course and they're majoring in something else. And I feel like I have more flexibility to bring in other things and I'm not as bound to cover all the materials. So it is really a balance. And I think it ultimately comes down to what is the overall goal and intent of the course. Um, one thing I do find I'm teaching a, a high school biology course right now for a homeschool group. And I have pulled back on the details because I'd rather them have a really good foundation on kind of the basics and the most important parts. And then if they choose to pursue science later on, then the details can be added back in. So I'd rather them have a really good experience of solid foundation uh, and enjoy the learning and enjoy learning about the awe and the wonder of the creative world and just the world in general. Um, and, and so in that way I can bring in more stuff, but it is, it's definitely a balance and I, I'm right there with you. All right, um, I see a lot of the questions are similar. So I'm gonna kind of group them together. The top ones that I see are, uh, where do you find copies of your historical papers? Which, which past year per, per, uh, sorry, paper do you use with your students? What are your favorite books? Um, and then probably uh, a more summative one. Can you just run through a list of the great works and primary resources that you love to use? Oh gosh, um, so there's a lot there. Um, What's happened is over the past five, 10 years, I just started to look and collect some of these. So it started with Gregor Mendel because I my background's genetics. And so I knew Mendel and you see it in all the um, textbooks. And so I went and looked for his paper. Um, I use Google Scholar a lot um, because I find that I can then get to either websites or places where I can find a PDF or something. Um, the great thing is a lot of these because they are older, um, then there are not copyrights on them and I'm able to find PDFs or, or copies. Some of them are a little bit more difficult because they might be originally published in another language. Um, and there's not a translation necessarily readily available. But I have managed to get um, Gregor Mendel. Um, it's called The Experiments in Plant Hybridizations. Um, that paper is readily available. You can search for it. Um, Robert Hooke's Micrographia is a fun one. And that is a lot of, there's companies and, and groups out there that are making these um, works available um, through PDFs. That one, I find the text pretty easily, but then going and finding the actual illustrations is another task there. Um, Louis Pasteur has a lot out there and I actually have some of his stuff that's in a published um, format, like an actual little textbook. The one I use specifically is from a work called The Studies on Fermentation the diseases of beer, their causes, and the means of preventing them. Um, and the specific experiment is just, uh, it's number three experiments on the juice contained in grapes. Um, I, I have a, I'm actually reading off my reference list and, and I was talking with um, our host to see if we could make that available to, to some of you. Um, I'm trying to think what other questions were, were embedded in there. But that's kind of the way I go about it is just, okay, there's this interesting piece that's historical. Can I go find more and find something that is accessible to students in, in some form that I can share and kind of go from there? Did I miss something? Is there another one that I'm missing? 
Oh, no, um, I do think that there were there were lots of requests generally for resources. So it's helpful to know that um, that you have some perhaps we can share after the fact. Yeah, uh, I did see a similar one. Um, and I know that I I really appreciated this as I was watching your presentation, the idea of just incorporating um, just a reminder that there is beauty in nature uh, as, as part of scientific observation. Uh, I saw the way that you incorporated different works of fine arts and music. And I saw a couple of questions as I'm scrolling through the list about what are some of your favorite art pieces or scientific oh. images that you like to have on the walls of classrooms. Um, oh. So I, I guess I'm curious as well, are there any that you, you tend to default toward? Oh, that's a really question. This is actually an area that I haven't dug as deep into. Um, and so I don't have as many good resources on that point. Um, I tend to default more to plants, I guess, just because um, it really, and well, and landscapes, I guess would be the other one too, um, because it, it just really does emphasize the beauty of nature. And um, so you could kind of dig in there. But the other thing that's interesting, and I don't have necessarily specific, um, artists in mind, although I will say Gray's Anatomy, which is actually quite technical, uh, has some beautiful illustrations when it gets into the anatomy of the human body. And so that's kind of a, a fun one to dig into if you're ever teaching like a human biology or an anatomy class. Um, but in terms of just nature in general, you know, I, again, I'm not an artist person, so I don't have good um, names and, and titles, but I think a lot of just the landscape and plants and those sorts of things can be great to just get your feet wet and start to talk about and discuss the beauty of nature. So that might be a good transition to, I think we just have time for one more question. Uh, this one I see here floated to the top of the list. Uh, do you think taking a, uh, do you think a focus on taking students outside to observe mm -hmm. the book of nature tends to overemphasize biology at the expense of other subjects, perhaps physics and chemistry, which are more difficult to passively observe without instruments? Oh, that's an interesting question. I guess I haven't given that one a lot of thought. Um, I mean, to some extent, I think it could be, but there's beauty in each of these different disciplines and, and it's partly how you think about it. I mean, one of the things I've struggled with is, yeah, you can we can take students outside and, and view the, the earth and the world and nature and see its beauty and focus on observation. But um, how do we do that? Yeah, in more of a lab technical setting, even to the point of, the use of the microscope, um, Hook and Leeuwenhoek and these people, when they invented the microscope and first looked through it, it was this whole new world that opened up to them. Um, and much like the stars, when we started looking through telescopes, and to some extent, we take that for granted because we're so used to this idea that we can see small things, uh, but they that was a completely new idea for them. So I try and, and emphasize that when we do microscopy, which is in the lab and is more technical, um, to remind students that even though we're looking at things that are small, that there's still beauty in it. And I think you could say something similar about the other sciences. And it really comes down, I think, a large part to the instructor. Um, I'll kind of uh, applaud my husband. He's a chemical engineer, but he's been teaching chemistry and he has a way and I, and I haven't, figured out exactly what it is, but the way he teaches chemistry, he loves it and he finds it so fascinating and so interesting that he has students who are dreading the class come out loving it. Um, and so I think a big piece of that is how you teach it. Um, and of course, nature is a great um, tool to use for biology, but 
you know, if, if you love your subject and you know it well, the, the idea is to be able to impart that enthusiasm to the student um, in whatever way that is. Chemistry, for example, there are, are qualitative reactions where you can see these changes taking place um, in simple experiments. And something he's been trying to do is how can I go back and find those really basic fundamental experiments that led to fundamental understanding of concepts in chemistry and recreate them for the students that the students can participate um, with them. So uh, that would be maybe some ideas there. Thank you, Dr. Ayala. And I, I certainly don't mean to, to cut this short. I, I see that you had a lot of questions. So we'll try to make sure we get those resources posted as much as possible. Uh, but thank you again. And thank you to everyone attending um, for coming to this session of the symposium. We're going to end the meeting and let you transition to your next session now. Thank you.